News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. With so many things going on around the world and across Canada, some important news might get overlooked like this, and we wanted to make sure we talk about it. The last fully intact ice shelf in the Canadian Arctic has collapsed. It lost more than 40% of its area in just two days at the end of July. That according to researchers. We wanted to find out what happened here and what this means. Joining us now is Luke Copeland with the University of Ottawa. Luke, thanks very much for being here. Thanks. Good morning to me. What area are we talking about? Yeah, this is the very far northern reaches of Canada, uh, right on the very far northern coastline of Ellesmere Island. Um, about 81, 82 degrees north, kind of facing the Arctic Ocean. All right. So is, is this uh, something that researchers have been monitoring for a long time? Yeah, I've been working up there with my colleagues um, for the last 10 or 15 years and, and many other researchers for years before that. And, and we've seen kind of many changes. You know, changes have really kind of accelerated since that year 2000. But uh, just the last few years, we've seen lots of changes. And so this year, clearly something what you've never seen before? Well, we have actually seen breakups in other years before. So we had a, a big loss of the Isles Ice Shelf in 2005, for example. But when we look back at, you know, in the year 2000, there were six ice shelves left on northern Ellesmere Island, six intact ones. Um, but gradually, kind of every few years, we've been losing those and they've been breaking up into smaller and smaller pieces. And the last complete intact ice shelf that we had left was the Milne Ice Shelf. Um, it's pretty well protected. It has uh, large cliffs either side. It's in this pretty well protected fjord was almost 200 square kilometers in area, and that's the one that we've just seen fractured into many small pieces. Okay, and how, how, how significant are these ice shelves, Luke? Why, why do we monitor them and keep an eye on them? Yeah, they're, they're really unique landform features. The, the ice shelves are locations where glaciers flow from the land onto the ocean surface, but are essentially preserved on the ocean surface. So it's ice that remains there for thousands of years. For the moon ice shelf, we know it's been there for at least 4,000 years, and they're really unique land features, but also really important in telling us about climate change because they're impacted by the changes in the air temperatures above them, but also the ocean temperatures beneath them. So they're really vulnerable to, to these kinds of climate-driven changes and, and how they change over time. So do we know the impact it will have from watching perhaps some of these other ice shelves? Do we know the impact it'll have by this one breaking up? I mean, the, so I guess the impact... Has the, there's a major impact locally on the ecology, which with my colleagues, um, they've recently discovered that there's lots of unique um, life that lives uh, kind of in, on and around the ice shelf. In particular, there was a, a large netwater channel um, that they discovered flowing through the ice shelf a couple of years ago. And living within that channel, there's all kinds of really unique life that has never been described in relation to ice shelves before. So things like uh, sea stars, sea cucumbers, um, scallops, uh, sea anemones, and these are actually living inside this channel, inside the ice shelf. Really? And no one's ever described this kind of life before. It's really unique to find. And this is Derek Mueller, his colleague at Carlton University, who's discovered this. And so that's perhaps the, the biggest kind of local impact. Um, in terms of impacts on sea level rise, there, there isn't one from the loss of ice shelves. It's a bit like melting sea ice, but it's already floating in the ocean. So when it melts, it doesn't change sea level. We have to melt glaciers for that. Right. But still, it's really important in terms of telling us just, just how and where and why the climate's changing across the Arctic. So will these ever be reformed again or once they break up? Is it permanent? Is it seasonal? It, it's basically permanent. 
So, I mean, to reform an ice shelf will take many, many hundreds of years to do. And that, of course, that's if the climate was, uh, was, was cold enough to enable that to occur, which it isn't right now. So to, to form an ice shelf, it's a bit like forming a glacier. You'd have to build up snow on the, on the surface of the land during the winter. Then the summers have to be so cold that that snow remains throughout the entire summer until more snow falls the following winter. Then they gradually thicken over time. For ice shelves, it needs to be so cold that uh, water would freeze on from the ocean underneath them too. But we don't have those conditions right now. The, the air temperatures are too warm. The ocean temperatures are too warm. And so in the current climate, there's really no way that we can reform these ice shelves. And, and that's what's kind of su- perhaps at first surprising about that loss, that we can lose an entire ice shelf in, in the space of an hour or two. But it takes many hundreds of years to, to be able to reform one, but we can't reform it in today's climate. So you said there were several, and this one was the last one. So that's it? There's no more left? Well, the, this is the last fully intact one. So there, there are other pieces left around. Um, so the, there's where well, the others have fractured a little bit. There's, there's pieces left. Um, but looking at the area today, there's less than 400 square kilometers worth of ice shelf fragments left. Um, compared to over a thousand square kilometers that we had uh, at the start of the century. So moving forward then, Luke, how does this change your research? What do you focus on now? Um, well, of course, there's still lots of other ice left. So, I mean, we're, we're looking uh, across the Arctic at sea ice changes, but particularly glacier changes. We, we have a large glacier area left in the Canadian Arctic, but that's changing very quickly too. We're seeing losses across the entire Canadian Arctic of essentially every single glacier that meets the ocean. Uh, we did a study just a couple of years ago that looked at 300 what we call tidewater-terminating, uh, ocean-terminating glaciers, and more than 90% of those had retreated uh, in the last few decades. And that's a pattern that we're seeing everywhere, that we're seeing less snow cover, much less sea ice, much younger sea ice. There's still lots for us, lots for us to, to research, but sort of at the same time, it's, it's really kind of strange in a sense to spend so much time you know, living and working on the Milne Ice Shelf. I've camped there many times and many months, and then to suddenly see it disappear is, is very strange. I can imagine. Yeah, Luke, thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. Great. Thanks so much. That is Luke Copeland from the University of Ottawa, one of the researchers who studies the Milne Ice Shelf. It is at the fringe of Ellesmere Island. That is very far north, actually, up in Nunavut. And it has now broken up into pieces, so it's no longer fully intact. That was the last fully intact ice shelf in the Canadian Arctic. And as mentioned, it has now collapsed. It lost more than 40% of its area in just two days at the end of July. So for researchers like Luke Copeland and others, uh, this means more research, obviously, to find out what kind of impact this is going to have. Uh, But clearly, we have lost something up there, and researchers want to know more more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Around the boards and Nico Sturm out there to start. Can't clear. Scores! Chris Tannehill from the point has a series winner for Vancouver. Yes, that's right, Chris Cuthbert. Series winner for Vancouver. Vancouver Canucks going to the playoffs for the first time since 2015. How great is that? Want to talk a little sports now because it was a busy sports weekend. PGA Championship. Uh, you've got hockey. You've got basketball. You name it. Nikki Reitmeyer's with us. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Did you watch the big game on oh, Friday night? I did. Yes. And here's here's what's really I think ironic about all of this, right? So they're all playing in Edmonton. They're at the NHL hub city for the Western Conference. Is in Edmonton. Uh, the irony being now though that Edmonton got knocked out. 
Yeah. I that's know, really right? tough. Seeing, I would imagine that's really tough for fans there to take. Not only that, Calgary oh. made it and Vancouver made it and Edmonton didn't. Seeing the fan reaction from Edmonton all over social media about this, they were like, come on, you know, we're here we are, we're hosting this big tournament right? and we get knocked out. And for Calgary, their rival team right. to stay in it as well and to, to knock out the Jets earlier in the week. Yeah, I think Edmonton fans weren't particularly happy. As, as a side note to that, did you hear about some of the drama surrounding their 50-50 draw also, which was making Edmonton fans upset? Yeah, what is it? And I know they had had some record-breaking 50-50 draws, but what was going on with that? They were having these huge 50-50 draws. Like, we're talking millions and millions of dollars going into the pot for these 50-50 draws. However, they were having technical problems. So fans were saying from Edmonton that, you know, they'd, they'd log in and they'd try to buy a ticket or a pack of tickets for 50 bucks for, you know, a certain pack of tickets. And they'd be, you know, pressing the button and pressing the button and pressing the button to buy oh, these no. tickets. And it would keep telling them, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. An hour later, they'd get a notification on their credit card statement saying, you have you know, successfully purchased whatever, you know, how many number packs oh, of tickets for, you know, a total of $2,000. So people are freaking out. They actually had to delay one of those hockey 50-50 draws as a result because there were so many upset people trying to get their money back from these 50-50 draws. So it was like a, it was a double kick no for kidding. the for Oilers fans this weekend. Their team was knocked out and they were having troubles with the 50-50 draw. Oh, my goodness no kidding all right thanks for that nikki thanks simi all right we're going to talk a little bit more about the sports situation because of course the other big story across the country the leafs didn't make it last night joining us now is christian omel host of the cgob sports show good morning christian morning simi how you doing i'm all right i'm not a leafs fan but leafs fans not not, not, leafs fans not doing so well right now well, they could be doing a lot better come tonight if they get the first overall draft pick. That would be a nice little silver lining if they get Alexi Lafreniere. But, yeah, to lose to Columbus, they have that big comeback the other night, and then all for nothing. They don't even score last night. So it's kind of typical choke job, leaf land. But I know. Again, I feel for the fans. Prize of Alexi Lafreniere. So I have get it. gotten to the point now where I actually I feel badly for Leafs fans, which is not something I would ever, ever have thought that I would be feeling. Yeah, I, I'm not there yet. So <laughs> you can you can you can hold that for it, then. <laughs> Let's talk a little hockey. Then, any other surprises for you out of the people who the teams that made it and those that didn't? Well, I mean. Of what jumps off the page is Pittsburgh and Edmonton aren't in the playoffs, but hockey in the best of times is the most unpredictable postseason. We saw that last year with Tampa Bay, historically great regular season, getting swept in round one by Columbus, and that's why you got to be ready for anything. And you throw in the fact that teams haven't played for five months, and I know it's you know a five versus a twelve, but you kind of reset everything when you come back after such a long layoff. And we saw, you know, Carey Price was really good. The young player from the Habs stepped up. Edmonton's goaltending was really bad. Their defense was bad. But David and Dreisaitl didn't get any help. And the Chicago Blackhawks have won three Stanley Cups. They've got that veteran savvy. So those are upsets. They're a bit surprising, but I can definitely see why they happened. Nashville losing, that same deal, right? But, uh, you know, Vancouver looked pretty good. So I think people in your city are, are looking right now at that matchup with St. Louis, the defending champs. The Blues didn't win one of their round-robin games, but same with Boston. You know, Boston, St. Louis, both were the one seeds going in. They're both four now, and we'll see if those round-robin games meant anything or if 
seeding ultimately doesn't matter because there is no home ice. So does it really matter? Oh, I know. That's what's fascinating, I think, about this whole thing. It's that anything could possibly happen. Now, have you been following along on basketball at all? Because I've been watching a lot of basketball, and it's a lot of fun right now. I've been following along. But my consumption of the NBA has always been playoffs. I'll really start watching the regular season. I'll kind of follow the box scores, a lot of highlights on Twitter. But I don't really watch a lot of it, especially if there's playoff hockey on. So I haven't been keeping close track. But, yeah, the games have been so close, so many intense finishes. I think it's because you took out the the worst team. So you only have pretty much good teams there. Yeah. And that's creating some really good quality basketball. And I think the playoffs, once they start in, I believe, the next uh, about a week from now, it's going to be really good. It is going to be really good. On the Western Conference side, there's still a fight for that very last playoff spot. And you've got three mm-hmm. teams so close into it that has made it quite compelling. And that, that's really what it's all about with sports, though, isn't it, Christian? It's that finding that good storyline. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you go down to the finish, and especially the way they've got it set up where there's going to be two teams that are going to have a little play-in series for that final seed, right? Yeah. Where the eighth seed is going to get, you know, just need to get one, one win, and then the ninth is going to have to beat them twice to get into the playoffs. So it's going to be an intense finish. And then all that just to begin the playoffs where we're going to see if the Toronto Raptors can perhaps repeat. I don't know. They're, they've looked really good in the restart so far. Their defense is really solid. And they've got a chance, I think, to go pretty far here. Yeah, they've constantly surprised. It kind of irritates me watching some of the American channels for basketball because they don't seem to pay any attention to the Raptors and then seem to be constantly surprised every time the Raptors win. <laughs> it's true, isn't it, right? Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, you know here's my Those super Raptors. Raptors. Like, they won last year. How are you yeah. sleeping on these guys? <laughs> yeah. They like to consider the Raptors just a blip, but here they are, second in the Eastern Conference behind Milwaukee. They have been amazing in this run up to the playoffs. And yeah, every single time the announcers are like, huh, who knew? The Toronto Raptors. So yeah, lost. Part of it's because they lost their best player, right? And so people thought, oh, they got no chance now, but turns out supporting tennis is pretty solid too. I think so too. All right, lots to talk about. Christian, thank you. You're welcome, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. The small community of Lions Bay up on Highway 99 there has been in the news recently. We know they've been linked to some recent cases of COVID-19. And they know they said that anyone who visited the park there during the BC Day long weekend is being warned that they may have been exposed to the virus. But that also goes hand in hand with the other story that the reason why Lions Bay has been in the news. And that is residents there say it's too much too many people coming to visit and they would just like people to well, stay in their own community for a little while. For more on that, we're joined now by Councillor Jamie Cunliffe, who's the acting mayor right now for Lions Bay. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. How busy has it been in that community right now? It's been incredibly busy. And just a point of clarification, we're not asking people to stay out of our community. We're just asking that they respect the maximum occupancy that we can offer safely at our beach park, which has been determined to be about 100 people. Ooh, that's not very much. How many people are showing up, would you say? Well, we've only had one incident I'm aware of where bylaw officials actually did have to turn people away, including residents. So that was a few weeks, a couple weeks back. Um, it's, it's just a very, very small piece of land. It is very desirable, we understand. And in other times, we are more than welcoming and want people to be able to come to our community and enjoy the resources that we have here. Is it causing like crowding on the beach? Is it a parking problem? What are you hearing from residents? 
Parking has always been an issue in Lions Bay. Um, previous to COVID, we do have public parking available. So we have two, three beaches, two which are more popular than, than the other. One has our wastewater treatment plant at Kelvin Grove, which has been closed since May um, due to the replacement of that. So we just can't grant safe access to the beach area there. That would be the reason we have that lot closed. The second lot at Lions Bay Beach Park accommodates about 25 visitor parking. So the math we determined, if four people show up per vehicle, that would be maximum occupancy at the beach without having any residents available to um, actually enjoy their own neighbourhood. So we've just had to keep it closed. Um, There is permit parking throughout the village. We do have guest passes that are available, so if anyone is in the village and befriends somebody, I'm sure a resident would be more than happy to give them a day pass. As well, we have the school lot open. There's parking sporadically throughout the village, and we do have pay parking at the trailheads. So how early are, is it getting filled up? How early are people showing up these days? Uh, well, the hikers are there early. Um, the beach itself Really, it's more kind of early afternoon when the peak of the heat sort of starts to hit. Now, I know it's been a couple of weeks since, you know, you've been putting the message out there. What has the response been like? Well, we have had some negative response from outside of the village that we are unwelcoming and we're elitist and snobs, etc., which just simply isn't the case. We are very welcoming I know of, you know, our volunteer base is primarily seniors. They're the ones that maintain the trails for outside visitors and residents to use, and I do know that some of them were walking around and handing out day permit parking passes for people to be able to accommodate them and their ability to use our, our trails. Right. You must be hearing from some residents, though. Well, yeah, there is frustration, especially when, you know, residents have packed up a picnic and are headed down from, you know, one of the, 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 the hills way up in the village to get down to the beach and then we're turned away. But everyone has been respectful that we have these rules in place. It's a matter of safety and we just all have to be kind and be patient and ride through this with each other. Okay, so then once again, then, Councillor Cunliffe, if people want to come to Lions Bay to enjoy the day or whatever, what is the right process? What should they do? Well, consult our website um, primarily. That'll give you very good direction as to where the parking is. And my, my suggestion would be to come early. Um, weekends are going to be busier by nature. If you were to come during the weekday, you would probably have better luck. Uh, but all we ask is that people follow the rules just as we are and, you know, enjoy. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is Councillor Jamie Cunliffe, currently the acting mayor of Lions Bay. They're trying to get the message out there that there is a way for you to enjoy, you know, Lions Bay Beach Park there that they have, uh, but they want to make sure that it's not overcrowded. They want to make sure that the parking issue is solved. Uh, so yes, they are concerned. And I'm not kind of not surprised that they got that reaction that they did because the initial stories did kind of give the impression that they were saying stay away. But as Councillor Cunliffe said, no, no. 
they're saying come, but you have to kind of be reasonable and know that if it's full, you're not going to be able to stay and make sure you park properly and all of those things. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. I mean, these are the challenging times we find ourselves in. Can't go anywhere else. We've got to do the staycation and things in our own backyard are kind of filling up really fast. And I know that's a case with hiking trails out there as well. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, drinking in public has surprisingly been a hot topic during the COVID-19 pandemic. So if you like doing that, you should know that as of today, drinking will be allowed at four public plazas within the city of Vancouver. Now, other jurisdictions have passed, you know, similar measures, but this is just one of many examples of how liquor rules have changed as a result of the pandemic. Remember to help out restaurants? Uh, during the whole situation, during the lockdown and everything, uh, rules were changed to allow restaurants to sell liquor with their takeout orders. All of a sudden, we had way more liquor delivery than we did. And all of those kind of experimental plans did prove to be a success. So are they going to stay? Well, that is the question. If you ask uh, Richmond MLA John Yap, who represents the BC Liberals, he would like them to stay. In fact, he's introduced a bill to allow them to permanently sell liquor with delivery. For more on that, John Yap joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, Good morning, Simi. Good to be here. Now tell me about the bill. What would it allow? Well, uh, the bill has uh, three parts to it. One uh, that you referred to, uh, which is uh, allowing uh, the changes that have been made uh, for restaurants to uh, deliver or have uh, pickup orders of uh, liquor products uh, continue on a permanent basis uh, rather than expire this uh, fall, um, which you know we think is really critical because, as we all know, the last almost five months have been really challenging for BC's restaurant and hospitality sector. Uh, and, you know, we have seen so many restaurants hard hit by, uh, by the pandemic. And this is one way to support small businesses and medium-sized businesses that uh, are our beloved restaurants and pubs. Have you heard from business owners and others who say they need this? Oh, yes. We've heard that there's a need for more support, uh, that, uh, you know, we've, we've seen so many uh, restaurants and, and pubs uh, in the sector close uh, the, the numbers show that about 14,000 closed in the first two months of the pandemic. Now, some uh, were able to struggle through uh, when when they were allowed to provide takeout service, and uh, and some have reopened. But so many thousands of uh, of people whose jobs are dependent uh, on this sector are, are really worried, uh, are, are waiting uh, to uh, go back to work, and it's important that we support this sector. And this initiative, you know, which we think is uh, is the simple one to make this change permanent to allow restaurants and uh, and pubs to deliver or to have pickup service with uh, alcoholic beverages uh, to continue on a permanent basis is a is a needed one to to not just uh, support the restaurants but uh, be a, a signal that you know we're that uh, we're there for our restaurants and pubs. You know what has amazed me and I think so many people throughout all this is how quickly we were able to pivot and change those liquor laws to make that happen. I mean, you spent a lot of years in government as well. Why is it always so hard to discuss changing liquor laws and yet when we needed to, it was so quick to do it? Well, that's a very good question. And I think uh, this pandemic has certainly uh, been a, a such a uh, an incredible uh, point in in time for us uh, that uh, you know all all of the 
the norms had to be tossed aside and our ways of thinking and operating, uh, which uh, have been fundamentally impacted by by the pandemic. So, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier that, uh, that there's been some positive aspects of, of this whole thing, and one of them has been, you know, a more open mind to uh, some of these changes. So, for example, uh, another uh, change that uh, this bill would introduce, if the bill is passed, uh, is to allow uh, our restaurants and pubs to uh, purchase their uh, inventory from uh, private liquor stores, you know, which uh, businesses that uh, employ people that uh, 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 will be able to, uh, if this bill passes, to provide the inventory to uh, our restaurants and pubs. Uh, you know, allowing uh, restaurants to uh, operate um, more efficiently and to uh, possibly uh, lower their costs and to support, you know, our uh, retail uh, businesses that are in the liquor business. Isn't that something the government had announced already that they said that, yeah, they will allow restaurant owners to be more flexible in where they buy their alcohol? Uh, that announcement had to do with uh, allowing for wholesale pricing to uh, restaurants and pubs, uh, whereas uh, previously they were uh, and are still, and I, I don't believe it's being uh, implemented yet, but uh, they would be able to uh, purchase product at a wholesale price rather than retail, which is what right. uh, you and I would pay at a liquor store. So this change would mean that a restaurant could go to uh, a neighborhood a uh, private liquor store and purchase uh, a carton of uh, wine or beer uh, as opposed to having to go to the LDB store to purchase it, uh, which is the case now. Are, do you think we're more comfortable now with how much looser the liquor laws are? It used to be we'd have these big discussions about changing even the slightest thing about liquor laws. But Do you think people are pretty accepting now? Well, I think the pandemic has opened our minds and eyes to uh, thinking about you know the possibilities of how we can uh, do things differently. So, for example, uh, you had an earlier discussion about uh, uh, going to the park, and uh, the Vancouver Park Board uh, is uh, wanting to uh, allow, in a measured and uh, controlled way, uh, consumption of uh, liquor in in some of its parks. Uh, and this bill does include uh, a. a it's a technical change, but it's naming the Vancouver Park Board as the uh, the entity that will have the authority to make these changes. Uh, so that is a decision for the Park Board. They've uh, made a decision to consider this, uh, and this bill, if passed, would uh, facilitate that. All right, so then what's the next step for yours? I have a feeling that there's not going to be much argument about what it is that you're putting forward in this bill, but what is the next step? Well, we're hopeful that the NDP government will agree to these changes and can incorporate uh, the changes into, uh, where possible, regulation or into a new uh, piece of legislation, which, uh, as we heard Vaughn say this morning, there's not a lot of time left for legislation just this week, uh, but uh, some of the changes, I believe, can be handled through through, uh, regulation, so the Cabinet can just make a decision on this. Uh, And, uh, you know, the other option, of course, is for the bill to be debated and passed, and You know, I hope that uh, the government will consider it. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you very much for your time.
Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. That is BC Liberal MLA representing Richmond John Yap talking about the bill that he has introduced, some legislation, with the potential to make some of these changes that we've had for liquor laws during COVID-19 permanent. Certainly our liquor laws have gotten a lot looser, right? Way easier to order liquor, way easier to order cocktails and everything with your takeout food. It's it's everywhere now, right? And before we always resisted doing that saying, oh, we're going to make it too available. It's too much. And yet now everybody's like, well, what were we what were we worried about? What was the big deal there? So how do you feel about that? Are you comfortable with how much looser liquor laws are now? And do you think we should keep it that way? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, that other public health emergency that we have here in BC is not getting any better. That is our opioid overdose crisis. We've got drug addiction issues. We've got homelessness. All of that seems to be getting worse. And even though we keep hearing stories about how the government is doing this or that, it doesn't actually seem to help the numbers, does it? So we wanted to talk about whether or not there were other methods that we should be doing to try to help people move away from drug use and perhaps get them back into society and away from those kinds of behaviors. So joining us now to talk more about that is Steve Whiteside, who's the Chief Executive Officer of John Vulcan Academy, which is an addiction treatment center based in Surrey. Uh, Steve, Thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Simi. Thanks for having me on. You know, I find that rehabilitation, treatment, detox, all of that is something that gets discussed a lot. But do we have enough spaces for people who want help? Well, first of all, you're right. We talk a lot about it, but we don't focus on recovery nearly as much as we seem to focus on other things. And I believe that if we focused on it more, we maybe would have helped a lot more people. I know at the John Vulcan Academy, we do have space to help people. We don't have a lot of space, but we have space. And um, we really need to communicate more with um, the government and really more with the stakeholders. In what way? How would you do that? In what way that's not happening right now that you would do that? Well, for instance, if someone is looking for a long-term treatment center, we're not on a lot of lists, it seems. It seems that the recovery centers are kind of working on their own. The harm reduction centers are working on their own. The detox centers are working on their own. And not everybody's working together into helping people all with communicating and on the same plan. Okay, so is it not a matter then of spaces? Is it a matter of communication? I think it's a matter of communication. I think if you talk to most recovery centers, there's going to be some kind of space available. There's emergency space available, or there's just, for instance, we have, a, we have space right now for six, seven new people to come in, but people just don't know about us. I can honestly tell you, we don't do the best job we could do at the John Vulcan Academy for communication, and I think there just needs to be a better plan set up, and I think the government could really focus on this plan and try to help bring it together. And don't, Steve, why do you think it is that our drug addiction problem has gotten what seems like so bad over the last you know, couple of years? Well, I mean, if you just look at how drug addiction works, it's going to get larger and larger if we're not treating enough people. I do believe that the governments have focused a lot on harm reduction, which has its place and is very important. But the other part of that pillar is recovery. And I don't think there's enough emphasis put on recovery. So if there's so much emphasis put on harm reduction, it really enables the addict to keep moving on with their lifestyle. I mean, it's nice, but BC and Canada has a wonderful safety net. And as people live in the safety net, they're not looking for recovery and they don't understand and know the recovery options that are out there with the harm reduction and the safety net procedures that are happening now. 
Is, is it also a challenge, though, for people who have addiction issues and want to get help? I mean, there is no one-size-fits-all solution for that. No, you're right, for sure. And a lot of the programs that are sponsored now are short-term uh, recovery. And at John Vulcan Academy, we're more the long-term recovery. And by, by no means are we the only long-term recovery. But it takes a long time to help someone change change their negative behaviors into positive behaviors, change their negative habits into positive habits. And so we always suggest that a long-term treatment is going to do much better than a short-term treatment, a 30, 45, or 60-day program. Right. Okay. So, but how does your program work then? What would be different about going through your particular program? Well, first of all, we are a long-term treatment center. And the model that we use, Simi, is we use what they call a therapeutic community. And a therapeutic community is where you come in and you don't just become part of the recovery, but you become part of the community itself and you build the community. Our community of students really hold each other accountable for their behaviors. So people come in and their behaviors, their, the way that they, their habits, everything that they do has really been knocked off because of the drugs and the addiction. And so when they come in, they learn how to live all over again. They learn how to behave in a way that helps them be successful in the real world. Right. They learn how to treat each other, and they really start to learn how to live a happy lifestyle again. And this is what a longer-term treatment center can do for a person. When you go into a 30-day treatment center, it's really great. It does great things for you. It sobers you up. It gets you thinking positive again. But then you go back out into the real world, and you don't have the tools that you need. You don't have the basic behaviors that you need to be successful, apply for a job, tell certain friends to stay away and try to bring in the positive friends. So this is what a longer term right. treatment center would do for you. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you think even at the John Vulcan Academy, you haven't done as good of a job with communication as you could have. What, what do you mean? Well, just plain, we have, uh, we have the ability to help more people. Right now, we have people on the streets, they're sleeping on the streets, they're using on the streets. And I believe, I strongly believe that some of these people would be benefited, would benefit to come into the John Vulcan Academy. And as long as we have space and there's people out there that need us, we haven't done a good enough job in communication. I'm not sure what the answer is. It's really frustrating. It's, it's actually a question that keeps me up at night. How do we help the people that need the help? And how do we get the word out to them? Right. And I believe that the government put together a, a very focused, communication plan to allow the hospitals, the detox centers, and really the harm reduction centers in downtown to let them know about these long-term recoveries. I think we could have more people, we could help more people, and we could bring people to sobriety. I, I always feel like the challenge must be the moment when somebody says, I, I'm tired of this and I want to get help, but then they have to find that place rather than the system being able to say, here's where you go and here's what you do. Yeah. I mean... System could be more proactive and help people find places. The other thing is the detox centers. Detox centers are really important because, for instance, the John Vulcan Academy, you have to already go through five or seven days of detox in order to come into our facility. So what happens if someone makes a decision, I really want to be off of drugs, I really want to start over again, and they can't even get into a detox center? So these are the kind of things that I'm talking about, about communication. If the harm reduction places can work with the detox centers and can work with the long-term treatment centers, and we can kind of set up a straight line for the addict to find a way to sobriety and recovery. I think this would really serve the public well. Yeah, Steve, I think people like me right now finding it a bit hard to believe that doesn't exist already. Well, it's 
certainly doesn't exist in any meaningful way, in my opinion. I talk to other recovery centers, and they say the same thing. And don't get me wrong, the government's working hard, and they're doing things to try to help this issue. But I don't think we're yet found the right recipe. And I believe that the right recipe is better communication and to get all of the different services lined up. And I don't think that's where we're at right now. Is there, is it, does it look promising at all, do you think? Is this something that you feel like, given the current climate, the, the numbers that keep going up, are, are we inclined to listen now? Well, the promising thing, in my opinion, is the government's committed to helping this solution. I think the centers are committed to helping this solution. I just think that there's so many players. You know, if you take a look at the downtown east side, how many players there are in two city blocks. So... That's the difficult thing. If we could somehow have the players all come together and focus on on the one the one goal, which is long term treatment or long term recovery, and um, so the promising thing is people want to help. Yeah. The thing that's very discouraging is we just haven't found the recipe to be able to do that. Do you think it's almost like we need to break it all apart and put it back together? I mean, the COVID nineteen pandemic forced us to really break apart a lot of systems and then make them work better. But somehow the opioid overdose pandemic has not done the same on the addiction side. Well, Simi, that's that's pretty uh, brilliant thing, actually, what you've just said. I think that would be great to be able to break it down and rebuild it. But that's a difficult thing to do. The, the COVID thing kind of made us. We had no choice. And I don't know if people feel we're in that position yet. But with the kind of numbers you know of overdoses and people who are dying, you would think we're probably pretty much at that point. I mean, it is being amplified right now because a lot of these people are getting a lot more money than they've ever had before. And if you're an addict, what do you do with your money? You buy drugs. Um, That's just the way it is. It's a disease. It's not a choice. It's a disease. And um, I think uh, the suggestion you just made about finding a way maybe to break it down again, to build it back up even better than it is now is a great suggestion. And uh, I think a lot of good things could come from that. Well, see, Steve, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That's Steve Whiteside, the Chief Executive Officer of the Addictions Treatment Center that's known as John Vulcan Academy. They're based in Surrey. I guess I was thinking about things that I heard, like from the city of Vancouver, their planning process, like trying to get a building project or something approved, used to be a nightmare prior to COVID-19. It was just a horrible system. Everybody complained about it. But because of the pandemic, it got broken and put together again in an emergency situation And they're much happier. Everybody is builders, developers, city hall with the way it is now. Why hasn't the overdose epidemic done the same for what's going on with our rehabilitation, our detox, our addictions, treatment? Find a way in Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the back-to-school plan for our province definitely going to be a topic of conversation today. Question period resumes in the legislature, and that is the first time since the whole plan was released by the NDP government. Released, yes, but still so many questions about it. Who was consulted? Who wasn't? Is this thing going to work? And what are school districts doing to start implementing this? To talk more about all of that, we're joined now by Stephanie Higginson, who's the president of the BC School Trustees Association. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simi. Was the BCSTA involved in the discussions for this plan? Yep. All of the uh, partners, rights holders, and stakeholders were involved in discussions from this plan, actually involved from March 17th, the day that the announcement was made at, you know, to suspending class instruction all the way through to the decision to bring students back in June. And uh, along with all the working groups, 
uh, and steering committees that were involved in helping form the, the framework. I think right. we should refer to it as a framework for the, the K-12 restart in September. And why is that? Well, because I think that there is a little bit of confusion, and that's understandable. You know, people have a lot of questions and concerns right now, and that's, that's fair. As a parent myself, uh, who also has almost daily interaction with grandparents in our house, of course, we have to be thoughtful, and, and I appreciate that people are being thoughtful and considerate right now, because I think that's one of the reasons why BC has done so well, is because we have been quite thoughtful about our interactions in our daily lives. But the, you know, the details of the plans that people are looking for really need to be flushed out at the local level. And, uh, you know, there's 60 different collective agreements. There's 60 different school districts in 60 different parts of the province. And so a lot of those questions that people are looking for really need to be flushed out at the local level uh, within the communities that those, um, that, th- that framework is going to be implemented. And it's there when, um, when districts start Uh, digging in with uh, all of their local stakeholders, including parents groups uh, and teachers and support staff and Mm -hmm. rights holders, that they can start to flush out uh, the implications or or the operations of this framework within their local communities. And shouldn't that be going on right now? Like, how come we're not hearing a lot about that process? Well, it is going on right now. Uh, I know in some in some districts that uh, some of the you know the uh, employee groups are still on um, holidays, but I know that as soon as the plan uh, was announced, that in, in most districts, and and I have yet to hear one that isn't, uh, the senior leadership team met that day. Uh, they started to look at the plan. They also, in many districts, the principals and vice principals came back and started to talk about what they're going to need in order to start working with their um, local unions in um, in how to operationalize the plan safely for students. So it's happening. It's, okay. it's not instant. I mean, these are these are complex um, complex details that we need to work out. And and so this was announced on July 29th, and school districts have until August. 21st, I believe, to submit their plan to the ministry, and then it'll be checked over by the ministry to make sure it meets all the requirements. And then once they get that approval on on August 26th, no later than August 26th, school districts will post their plans, and that will include things like sample schedules, uh, examples of how students will move through hallways safely, things like that. Okay, and what do you think about this push to move the start of the school year back by two weeks? Well, it's the latest start we've ever had. Well, not, no, not ever. It's one of the latest dates that we can start with the school year. The school year obviously can start between September 2nd and September 9th. Uh, we have a number of students who haven't been in school since March 13th, and I think we need to make sure most importantly that uh, we can make sure that when the doors open, students can come in safely. I think we need to think about transitioning students in slowly and safely since many, most students in this province haven't been in a school since March 13th. So making sure that when students come back to school, there's, there's lots of, uh, of work with them on what it's like to be in the building now, how it's different, how we are safe and on operate and, and exist safely together in the building. So I think all of those things need to be taken into consideration when we're talking about delaying right. the start of school for students. So you're saying even though the date is September the 8th, that doesn't mean every child is showing up on that date. You may be told by your school and your district that, oh, here's your date. Uh, you know, I don't know how each district's going to handle it, but I think what I'm saying is that in, in context of should we delay the start of school for two weeks, uh, which I'm hearing some questions for for planning purposes, we also need to take into consideration in that that school is starting late this year, one week into September, and that if we do want to have an opportunity to transition students in slowly, which may take up to a week, 
you know, we have to think about what that means long-term for families who are anxious to have their children back in school for, you know, for personal reasons and also for the, the educational needs of students. So I think all of these things need to be thought about carefully and worked out at the local level right. uh, so that we're making sure that we can do this safely. This is thoughtful, methodical work that will take some time. On a final note then, Stephanie, what do you say to all the parents and teachers out there who are voicing their concerns about this? I would say that I can understand those concerns. We haven't had yet in our sector to to really figure this out uh, because of the um, the natural school break that happens over summer, and and we've. We're glad to have that break so that we can um, dig in and create a safe plan. And our province has done extremely well. Dr. Henry has led us well through, and our provincial health office through this um, public health emergency. And, and we will continue to make sure that we have a plan that's thoughtful and methodical and based on science. And it's just, it's going to, we all are going to have to do some, some adjusting in the way we live to include these new layers of, sa- of safety measures. And it's just, it's going to take some time to get those answers that people want because the framework was just released on July 29th and, and districts need to, to be thoughtful and make sure that they're, they're uh, consulting with everybody involved. All right, Stephanie, thank you for your time. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We've heard a lot about how the tourism and hospitality industry here in BC needs help. It needs financial assistance. That's the case all over the world, really, for tourism industries. Here in BC in particular, they're trying to find a way to somehow safely get people to use all these tourist facilities, but at the same time, uh, they're not able to kind of ramp it up to the level that they would obviously like to. Well, Rick Antonson has written an op-ed in the Vancouver Sun newspaper on this subject, and he joins us now to talk about this. For more than 21 years, he was the president and CEO of Tourism Vancouver. Vancouver. Rick, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Nice to be here. Do you you think the industry can bounce back from this? Well, it's an important conversation that really needs to focus on where will it be by 2023 and how do we get there, which means how do we get back to full recovery? It's an industry in tatters. It it has had dire straits. And, And you said it right. This is happening around the world. But British Columbia is our home. And the employees in the tourism industry and the businesses in it are our friends, their colleagues, their neighbors. And we can do something here to be an example to the world about how to slowly roll out the welcome mat again and get tourism back on its feet. How do we do that then? Well, short-term action with a long-term horizon. We've got to see where we want to be in a couple of years and begin literally today. Part of that is government investment. Uh, The Tourism Industry Association of BC, which is an umbrella of all manner of of sectors, whether that's tour operators or the the accommodation sector or the the restaurant or or tour guides, they're all looking for assistance, but planned assistance, so that what is done can be built upon in the next month and in the next year, so that we see our way back to a healthy, viable tourism industry that, frankly, maybe we took for granted and now realize that it's in the tank and we've got to find a way to bring it back to the wide benefit right. to communities and businesses and, and our neighbors who work in the industry. Do you support, then, the calls for provincial government help on this financial assistance? Provincial government financial assistance is mandatory. The, the industry needs liquidity for those economic engines that, that the, the companies that, that 
cannot at present provide that that broad uh, ripple effect of job creation, tax generation, because in part, the border has been closed. In part, people aren't willing or able to travel. In part, people from all over the world who used to come here by the millions can no longer get to British Columbia with their foreign currency, which helps build not just our economy and our jobs, but it builds our communities. It, it builds the very fabric of the culture that we call home. You mentioned in your piece there that you wrote that we have something like 6 million overnight international visitor arrivals. How can we possibly make up for that? Well, we can't make up for it just by fellow Canadians. Fellow Canadians are, are filling some of the gap, and they're, they're very important. But traditionally, in a good year, and we've had many good years of recent time in the tourism industry, there would be about 4 million visitors from the United States. There would be maybe a little over a million from the Asia-Pacific region, and there'd be like 600,000 from Europe. One of the things to keep in mind is that when people from Asia or Europe or, or further away places in the U.S. come to British Columbia, they don't come for two nights in Vancouver or a bit of a spell on Vancouver Island. The further away they come from, the more likely they are to come for two weeks or three weeks. They want to see the caribou. They want to see the north. They want time in the Rockies. They want northern Vancouver Island. Then they want a couple of days in Vancouver. So whatever motivates them to come, it's, it's for many, trip of a lifetime. Right now, as I mentioned, British Columbia is slowly rolling out the welcome mat. It's going to take some time. We need a return to consumer confidence, and that's not going to happen overnight. But we also need people to say travel for them is a priority, and British Columbia is the preferred destination. So then how do we, how does a financial package or financial assistance address that, right? Like you can't give money to every single hotel or tourism operator. So how does a package even begin to cover some of this? Well, a package could include, for example, a working capital recovery grant, which could targeted, target specific businesses or groups of businesses. There are many in the, in the restaurant sector or many in the accommodation sector, and they're just the higher profile that really do need uh, liquidity at this time. They need help in the way of, of keeping their employees working or keeping them tethered to the organization, and they need funding to slowly reopen. The second portion is how do you, how do you help these businesses adapt? They need new supply chains. They need, need new sources of, of visitors. They need new marketing techniques. So when you look at all of those, you, you really do need hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's quite specific in some of the submissions to the provincial government that identify where that would go in the tourism sector. Keeping in mind that the tourism sector probably was the hardest, most immediately affected by the, the, the downturn. What we've learned from COVID-19 is that everyone knows somebody who didn't think they were in tourism but had a job in the support way. They might have been a fisher, they might have been a, a truck driver delivering to restaurants. When those end users do not have consumers, they do not have profit, they might not even be breaking even. We can't see them go out of business. We can't see them not be able to adapt to the new times. All right. Listen, thanks so much for this, Rick. Appreciate your time. Me too. I appreciate being part of the conversation. Let's look to make 2023 a year of full recovery, starting with action today.